Welcome to another episode of the Reformation Roundtable podcast. My name is Joe Stout, and this podcast is a ministry of Christ Covenant Church in Centralia, Washington. During each episode, you will hear the sermons, liturgy, discussions, and interviews from the various weekly gatherings here at Christ Covenant Church. If you would like to find out more, please visit us online at ChristCovenantCentralia.com. That's ChristCovenantCentralia.com. Please enjoy the following audio. See and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And also to you. From Psalm 119. Blessed are the undefiled in the way. Who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are they that keep his testimonies. And that seek him with the whole heart. They also do no iniquity. They walk in his ways. Thou hast commanded us to keep thy precepts diligently. Oh, that my ways were directed to keep thy statutes. Then shall I not be ashamed. When I have respect unto all thy commandments. I will praise thee with uprightness of heart when I shall have learned thy righteous judgments. I will keep thy statutes. Oh, forsake me not utterly. So lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us pray. Make us, O Lord, to walk in thy law, holy and undefiled in the way of this life, diligently to keep thy commandments, and leave us not ever alone in the keeping of thy statutes. Wherefore we say, Glory be to the Father, who is good and gracious. Glory be to the Son, the Word that endureth forever in heaven. Glory be to the Holy Ghost, who giveth light and understanding unto the simple, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. And amen. Amen. As we continue to explain our worship service, we are seeking to understand the biblical why behind the what. And this week, I want to answer the question, why do we repeat many of the same words and prayers every Sunday? Why so much repetition? In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. The difference between the vain repetition of the heathen and the repetition in our worship is the difference between grace and works. Grace and works. The heathen thinks that the work of a long prayer or the work of repeating Hail Marys somehow puts God in their debt, as if he owes them for merely going to church and saying many words. But true and spiritual repetition is an act of faith that is done in response to God's grace. Spiritual repetition is an act of faith done in response to God's grace. God has graciously told us to do many things over and over and over again. Right after condemning vain repetitions, what does Jesus do? He teaches his disciples the Lord's Prayer. This is the kind of virtuous repetition God wants for his people. Just as a parent requires his child to say please or thank you, regardless of how the child feels, so also God teaches us to say many things, regardless of our feelings. This is not lying or teaching hypocrisy, for hypocrisy can exist anywhere. This is rather the practice of faith, for it is in the very act of saying please or thank you or I love you or the Lord's Prayer that we are being taught by God how to trust him. 
Forcing ourselves to do these things is an act of faith. It is how we mortify our flesh and rule over our passions. It is better for the child to be forced to say thank you, even when he doesn't feel gratitude, than to allow him to remain silent in sin. So also, it is better to go through the motions of the worship service, even if you don't feel faith. Because faith is not a feeling. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith is an act of the intellect in response to God's grace. It is the childlike trust that God is good and knows what is best for us. So why do we repeat the same words and prayers every Sunday? Because our faith needs practice. Our heart needs training. Our feelings need discipline. And repetition is how God forms this virtue in us. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins. So as you're able, let us kneel before the Lord. Father, we confess all of these sins to you in Jesus' name and amen. Amen. Let us rise for the assurance of God's pardon. The enemies of God are brought down and fallen. But we are risen and stand upright. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is God's mercy towards them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Saints of Christ's covenant church, because you have confessed your sins, holding nothing back, it is my joy to announce to you that your sins are forgiven through Christ. Thanks be to God. Our sermon text this morning comes from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 33. These are the words of God. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the mystery of marriage that has been revealed in Christ and in the church. We ask now for your Holy Spirit to cleanse us by the washing of water by your word, that as your word is preached, we might be made glorious, made without spot or wrinkle or any defect. And so we ask that you would renew us now, for we ask this in Jesus' name, and amen. Amen. What are the duties of a husband? That is the question we'll be answering this morning as we continue our series on the Christian family. And another way of framing this question could be to ask, what is God going to hold husbands accountable for on Judgment Day? 
What is God going to hold us husbands for, uh, accountable for on Judgment Day? Uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.10 that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And so when every man who was a husband on earth stands before Christ, what is he going to be held accountable for? That is the question before us as we consider the duties of a husband. What does God require of husbands in his word? Uh, There's been a lot of confusion about this as of late, both in the church and outside of it. Uh, And this is is because uh, many people have bought the lie that men and women are not essentially different. That sex, sex is some kind of social construct and it's determined by the individual rather than assigned to them by God. This is, of course, a lie. And then there are Christians who might not go that far, but who think that in marriage, and especially in Christian marriage, that there is no hierarchy that there is no difference in authority, no difference in role or responsibility between husband and wife. We call this egalitarianism, and it also is a lie. And so to get at the truth, we must turn to the source of truth, the Word of God. For there, in it, we can learn how to do marriage God's way. You can try to have an egalitarian marriage. You can try to reverse roles. You can try doing marriage the way of the world. But I guarantee you it will not be a happy marriage for long. It won't be a good marriage, and it certainly will not be a Christian marriage. So, what are the duties of a husband according to God's word? Uh, The answer is really simple, and it is given to us in Ephesians 5.25. It says there, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church. Right? Simple enough. The whole duty of a husband can be summarized in these words. Love your wife like Christ loved the church. The duty of a husband is love. But what exactly does love look like? Remember when Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? How did he answer that question? In Matthew 22, 37 to 40, he says this. It says, Jesus said unto them, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So Jesus engages in a kind of summary of the entire Old Testament law. Uh, The Jews count something like 613 unique laws in uh, the Torah, all of which are summarized under the Ten Commandments. So you can connect every single one of those 613 laws under the heading of one of the Ten Commandments. The book of Deuteronomy is actually structured this way. And Jesus comes along and he further summarizes those Ten Commandments down into two. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And so Ephesians 5, our text, is really just applying that same principle to husbands, which means there are 613 other laws that can teach you how to love. Some might be uh, more relevant for marriage, some less relevant, but they all have something to teach us about what love is and does. So think about it like this. Our chief duty as husbands is to love our wife as ourself. And if we do that successfully, we will have fulfilled the entire law towards our wife. Now, 
because we are sinners and often very stupid, we need to be given specifics, right? We don't actually know what love means. We need to be told in greater detail how to love our wife. At least most of us do. Uh, How many of us have thought that we were loving our wife only to find out later that she didn't actually want the complete works of Jonathan Edwards for her birthday? (laughs) We think, love my wife as myself. What would I like? (laughs) Old books. Uh, Yeah, golden rule, right? That's That's what we're doing. Yeah, or or, or reverse the roles, right? How many men would feel loved by receiving flowers from your wife? I mean, it's okay if you will feel loved by that, but, you know, flowers are pretty, flowers are nice, but that doesn't really do anything for me, okay? That they're nice to look at, maybe you can smell them, I'm probably allergic to most of them, but, you know, I would prefer a good steak or, you know, an old book or a new tool, right? Men, Men and women are very different. We give and receive love in very different ways, and so part of learning to love your wife means studying the specific woman that God has given to you, because not all women are the same. I mean, maybe your wife does want the complete works of Jonathan Edwards, maybe. Uh, In 1 Peter 3, 7, husbands are commanded to dwell with your wife according to knowledge. Dwell with your wife according to knowledge. That doesn't mean you understand her, for who can understand a woman? It means knowing how to love her, how to make her feel loved. And so for those of us who need specifics, Scripture gives us some details to help fill out that definition for love. And we'll consider really just a few of them this morning in our text. So what are those specific duties? Looking at verses 22 to 24, it begins this way. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Now, uh, next week we'll have a whole sermon on the duties of wives in this text. Uh, But for now, just notice that the husband is the head, as Christ is head of the church. And this means that the husband is the principle, he is the source from whence the wife comes. And because of this, there is a certain hierarchy of authority that follows. Just as woman was taken from Adam's side, so the church was taken from Christ's side. When blood and water flowed from Jesus' bosom on the cross, the church was being born. The feminine proceeds from the masculine as river from font. And Paul is saying that the woman is subject because she proceeds from the man. And the church is subject because she proceeds from the Lord Jesus. That is the logic of headship, and it is grounded in creation. You see this also in 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Corinthians 11. Notice also here that a husband does not choose to be the head, nor does the wife allow her husband to be the head. He is the head whether he likes it or not. He can be a good head or a bad head, but he is a head regardless. When you got married, this is the role God assigned to you, whether you knew it or not. And the choice before you is simply, will you embrace that divinely assigned role or will you kick against it? Because either way, the husband is head and the wife is body and God will judge you as such. So the first duty we might gather from this text is this. 
Number one, a husband is required by God to embrace his headship. A husband is required by God to embrace his headship. What does this mean? Well, it means that you are now responsible for your wife and answerable to God for her actions. The head is responsible for everything the body does. And here we must make an important distinction between what we might call guilt versus responsibility. Guilt versus responsibility. When Eve ate the forbidden fruit, she was judicially guilty before God and deserved to die. And in that moment before Adam also ate, he was not guilty for Eve's sin, but he was responsible for it. Meaning that if Adam had not also eaten the fruit, he would not deserve the death penalty like his wife did, but God would have held him accountable for not stopping his wife, right? He was standing there the whole time. That is the essence of being responsible. This same principle applies to fathers and children. Uh, Deuteronomy 24.16 says, The fathers shall not be put to death for the children, neither shall the children be put to death for the fathers. Every man shall be put to death for his own sin. So here you see this distinction again. Guilt is assigned to the child, but responsibility is assigned to the father or to the husband. We know this because there are countless instances where God judges fathers for the sins of their children. Whole households are judged as a unity because of the actions of one person. And this is what we mean when we say things like covenant or covenant kids or covenant responsibility. I'll give you one example from 1 Samuel chapter 2. Eli is the priest and his sons were committing fornication with the women at the tabernacle. And Eli does not discipline them. He tells his sons to stop, but he does not restrain them. And so God uh, sends a prophet in, that says to Eli, Why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering which I have commanded in my dwelling place? And honor your sons more than me, to make yourselves fat with the best of all the offerings of Israel, my people. And then what happens two chapters later? Eli and his sons die. Eli was not guilty for his son's fornication, but he was responsible for it as their father and superior. And the same applies to a husband and his wife. So when we say that a husband is responsible for his wife and children, we are saying that he is answerable to God for their actions. He might not be judicially guilty for every particular sin, but as head, the husband is responsible for what the body does. You can't say to God, that wasn't me who kicked the cat. That was just my leg. In the eyes of God, the husband and wife are one. They are a unity. Husband is head. Wife is body. There is distinction of guilt between husband and wife, but the head is responsible for all that the body does. And if that seems unequal, asymmetric, or like a double standard, that is because it is. Those with more authority and power are judged more strictly. The Bible says teachers are judged by a higher standard than students. Older children are judged by a higher standard than younger children. And in a similar way, the husband has more responsibility before God than the wife, just as the head must answer for all that the body does. So the first specific duty of a husband is to embrace this God-given headship to not abdicate this role to his wife, 
but to take responsibility for his marriage, for his children, and all that they do. This is where love starts. Love starts with taking responsibility in the eyes of God. We see more specific duties in verses 25 to 26. It says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. There are a number of duties here, uh, but the first is to give ourselves up for our wife, right? This is what the head does. Christ died for sins that he did not do. Jesus took responsibility for the church's actions. And this is how a husband exercises authority, by giving up his selfish desires to seek the salvation and good of those under his care. This is why he is called the Savior of the body. The example of Christ undercuts all the excuses that we might come up with. When our wife sins and does something distasteful, we want to distance ourselves. We want to say, that was you, I had nothing to do with it. But that is not how Christ exercises headship. Christ goes to the cross. He bears the shame. He identifies himself with sinners, though he himself is perfect. Jesus was so secure in his identity as Son of God that he was willing to have that identity maligned and questioned. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. If you are really perfect, then why are you dying a cursed death? This is what headship does. It goes to the cross. When a husband is put to shame in order to save and protect his wife, that is glorious in the eyes of God which is why husbands must care most about what God thinks of them. Husbands must care most about what God thinks of them. And so if you have a sinful wife, then you must do what Christ did. You must own her sins. You must bear that responsibility before the Lord. Say to God, forgive my wife. Cleanse my household. As head of my wife, have mercy on us. This is what righteous headship looks like, and God sees when you do this. You see the opposite in many marriages, which just repeat the Genesis 3 pattern. Remember when God came to Adam in the garden after they had sinned? Who does God talk to first? He comes to Adam first, because he is the head. And then Adam, he blames God. He blames his wife. He blames how hard the circumstances are. God goes to the woman, and who does she blame? She blames the serpent. There's fingers pointed everywhere. No one is owning up. But what do we see with Christ? Christ, the true bridegroom, does the opposite. And so must every Christian husband. This is what headship means. Owning the sins of your bride and interceding for her to the Lord. Practically, this means that if there is something that your wife does that drives you nuts or if there's some besetting sin in her that frustrates you or causes conflict, the first thing you have to do is get on your knees before the Lord and say, God, I am responsible for my wife's sin. Her anxiety, her fear, her envy, her sharp tongue, her gossip, whatever. And you say, 
Please forgive her, make her holy, and please forgive me for whatever I have contributed to her sin. And then you can get up and confront her in a spirit of gentleness, Galatians 6. You say, you know, my love, my bride, you are not allowed to speak that way because that displeases the Lord. You must confront sin in your household, but you must do it with that posture of owning that sin, owning and taking responsibility for it. So that is how you take responsibility for the sins of your wife. And the reason that we do this is because it makes her beautiful. It makes her more lovely. Sin is ugly. Sin is not attractive. So why would you let sin remain in your wife and in your home? We see this in the example of Christ. Why did Christ die for his bride? Verse 26. So that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. Christ's sacrifice cleanses sinners. And to give ourselves up for our wife means to smear the blood of the lamb upon the doorposts of our shared household. It means to do as Job did, who rose up early in the morning and offered burnt sacrifices for all ten of his grown children, just in case one of them might have blasphemed. That is what taking responsibility looks like. So do you offer a sacrifice of praise and confession on behalf of your wife and children? Do you plead with the Lord to forgive and cleanse your wife for the sake of Christ? Do you confess your own sins and the ways that you have failed as a husband? This is what it means to be a righteous head, to be a perfect and upright man and one that fears God as Job did. God knows your heart. God knows when you are bitter against your wife. And he knows when we are abdicating our responsibility for her and our children. And when we disobey, when husbands abdicate or abuse the authority God has given them, it says that our prayers are hindered. God makes us miserable. 1 Peter 3.7 says, Husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Here is the higher standard. When men do not love their wife like Christ loves the church, Christ disciplines them. God stops listening to them. When we are harsh with our wife, we are saying, God, I want you to be harsh with me. When husbands are unreliable and do not keep their word, they are saying to God, be unreliable to me. And that is a very dangerous game to play. The purpose for which we sacrifice ourselves for our wife is to make her glorious. As it says in verse 27, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. The love of Christ is powerful. The love of Christ changed you, didn't it? It is what we call effectual grace. It effects the thing it sets out to do. And the love of a husband when he lays his life down for his wife has that same power to change her as well because that love and power comes from God. True love beautifies. True love makes people glorious. Not overnight, but in time. Christ is making us without spot, blemish, or wrinkle. And this means 
It is a husband's responsibility to see that his wife's appearance, both internal and external, is becoming more Christ-like. And it is our duty to present her without spot before the Lord. Think about this. God gave you your wife. Okay? It says in Proverbs, you know, wealth and riches are from a father, but a wife is from the Lord. A prudent wife is from the Lord. Same thing with your kids. Did you pick what kids you were going to have? No. They were given to you. And all that you have is on loan from the Lord. And God wants you to give all of those things back to him one day. And he's going to say, what did you do with what I gave you? God wants your wife. He wants your children. And he wants them back more glorious than when he gave them to you. So husbands, are you seeking the sanctification and glorification of your wife and children? Because that is what Christ is seeking for us. And we get to participate with him in that work. In verses 28 to 29, we are given two other duties that flow from love. It says, So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. So two last things. God requires husbands to nourish and cherish our wife. To nourish is to provide all that a woman needs for life and godliness. This includes her physical needs like food and clothing and a place to live. It also includes her spiritual needs like a good church with elders who will discipline you if you abuse your headship. It means leading your wife in prayer and worship and the word, making sure that she is spiritually nourished in the Lord. A husband is also to cherish his wife, to cherish her. Uh, in Greek, this carries the sense of gentleness and warmth. A nurse cherishes a newborn. A mother cherishes her baby. And likewise, husbands are to cherish their wife, keeping her warm. Christ gives the warmth of his spirit to the church. He keeps the fire burning upon the hearth, and that is the duty of a husband, to be a gentle and warm presence, a place of protection, safety, and comfort from the world. The husband is to nourish and cherish his wife, even as the Lord does the church. I'll close with this. In Hebrew, the word for glory is this word kavod, kavod. And kavod is something that is heavy, weighty, rich, honorable. In scripture, gold is kavod. A throne is kavod. When the Lord appears, it is full of kavod. And marriage is also kavod. Marriage is glorious. At least it can be. It is rich. It is weighty. And if you look in Proverbs, it says that before kavod is humility. And by humility and the fear of the Lord come riches, life, and kavod, Proverbs 22, 4. And so to be a husband is to carry a heavy burden of responsibility. And if that burden would be honor and not shame to you, glory and not ashes, then you must embrace it. You must carry it in the fear of the Lord. You must be willing to humble yourself like Christ did for you. And when you do that, when you take up your cross and deny yourself, God 
gets kavod. God is glorified. Christ is exalted. And that kavod that belongs to God is given to you. And so what is headship? Headship is an invitation to die for your bride and rise again. To die daily and be resurrected daily. This is the chief duty of a husband. To trust the Lord that he will raise the dead. And to love your wife like Christ loved the church. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, you know the weight of responsibility that you have given to us. You know that as a people, as a culture, we are so individualistic. We do not think about other people this way. God, I ask that you would forgive us for the ways that we have failed as husbands. God, I ask that you would forgive our wives for the way that they have chafed under our leadership. God, I ask that you would make us to imitate you in our marriages that you would restore us, that you would renew us, that you would make us like you, that we would be a faithful picture to the world of what Christ's love for the church looks like. Pray this in Jesus' name, and amen. amen. This meal before us is one of the ways that Christ nourishes and cherishes his bride. The bread gives us strength. Our faith is built up. The wine gives us warmth. It is the fire of the Holy Ghost. In this sacrament, Christ gives himself to us. We are united as lover and beloved as we feast together. So receive the comfort and warmth of the glorious God. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. The charge is this. Headship is kavod. It is a heavy and glorious task. So husbands, thank God for that and get to work. And wives, help your husband. Honor him. Thank him. Encourage him. Don't make his work more difficult than it already is. And come back next week when we talk about the duties of wives. Uh, receive now the benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Go in peace.